Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our series uh, about, not just about 1 Peter, about living in exile is the theme that Peter uh, picks up. And uh, we're actually going to be in this little section for uh, two weeks because we're going to kind of cover it in two different ways. Um, And uh, so we're going to look at this. Uh, for the next two Sundays, verses 1 through 12. And Peter is making a little bit of a transition. He's told us who we are. We're exiles. And he's talked about our salvation. Um, and then he started giving us uh, how we're supposed to live in this exile. And we have a new hope and a new character and a new lifestyle. And he talked about that at the end of chapter 1. And specifically, that lifestyle is to be about loving others. And uh, so today, we're going to jump into this and Look about what it means to be redeemed and how that redemption in Christ is supposed to grow. Uh, Yesterday, my wife and I uh, went to uh, the Family Fun Center down in Wilsonville, which sounds kind of funny for two of us, but they were giving away free passes uh, at Janine's work, some sort of work thing. And uh, we said, hey, we'll have a free date. We'll go down and play some miniature golf and some bowling. And uh, so we did that and, and had, a, had a nice time. Uh, after bowling, my body reminded me that I haven't been bowling in a long time. Um, but uh, as we were driving down there, uh, we uh, were just kind of talking about this bill that we have to pay. I don't know if any of you ever have those. It was kind of this medical thing where they sent a bill and said, you owe this much money. And uh, we sent some money, and they sent another bill and said, now you owe this much money. And I said, I don't think that's how paying is supposed to work. So we wrote them a nice letter that's saying, uh, no, this is how much we owe, and here it is. And so they sent us another letter saying, no, you're wrong. You owe us this much money. And so yesterday was the day that we said, oh, all right, we give up. We owe this money. And we were lamenting is the biblical word. Griping is probably a little bit more realistic (laughs) of what we were doing. And so uh, during this griping session, I said, you know what? Um, We really don't have it that bad. And my wife said, no, you're right. And then we started this other, and some of you have done this, played this game too. Uh, At least, have you ever played that game? At least, you know, we're not in this situation or that situation or this situation. And I started thinking about it later, just this whole conversation and, you know, uh, how we kind of get off on that sometimes as families or couples or individually in our own mind. And It's based on a faulty worldview that we have. And the faulty worldview, I think, um, honestly, uh, this one I think I I kind of learned in the church. And the faulty worldview is that everything is going to get better. It's going to get better. If you work hard and do all the things you're supposed to do, it's just all going to get better. You know, sometimes it doesn't. The, The... Ultimately, it's going to get better, right? In heaven. But in this world, we may still live with pain. In this world, we still may live with financial difficulties. In this world, we still have health issues. And so not everything is going to get better. And when we look at it in sense of the church, our mission statement that I said this morning is that we are a multi-generational church striving to reach individuals and families in our community. We do that by growing in our love for God. And as I think about that, uh, sometimes when we've been around the church for a long period of time, that growth starts to kind of taper off a little bit. And if we're honest, what we grow in is our opinions of 
how things should be. And our growth is not a healthy growth. And so when we say that phrase, grow in our love for God, we are saying that this church, that we as followers of Jesus, unless we grow in our love for God, the rest of it isn't going to happen. And so our vision, love God, we need to grow in that love. Love people, we're not going to love people unless we grow in our love for God. And make disciples. And we're not going to make disciples unless we grow in our love for God. So in, in this book, Peter has laid out this exile thing and where we're headed and loving other people. And then in verse, chapter 2, he says this. Follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. So, so because you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth in verse 22, uh, because you have a sincere brotherly love, because in the verse before the end, this word, the good news was preached to you because of all this. So because of this change, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual houses, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak uh, against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When we pick up in verse 1 in chapter 2, so put away, uh, it's really still tied to Peter's thought back in chapter 1, verse 22 and following. In fact, many commentators put verses 1, 2, and 3 back into that passage, but we have a, a chapter break there, so I've broken it up. But understand, we're still following Peter's thoughts. You've purified your souls by your obedience in verse 22. And then notice they, in uh, chapter 2, the end of verse 8, they stumble because they disobey. So he's making a contrast between these two groups. It's 
not surprising that in this passage, when Jesus is spoken of, it's in the singular form. And when his followers are spoken of, it's in the plural form. That makes total sense. But I want to remind you that the Bible doesn't speak as much about your personal relationship with Christ as it speaks to the community of believers. And so to accept Jesus as redeemer means that we also accept those who have been redeemed. And so this is very much a community type of theme here. So I have entitled it Growing in Redemption, specifically love. And we're going to look at that we have a new way, we have a new community, and then I'm going to introduce this idea of identity, but we're going to come back to identity um, next Sunday and do that a little bit more in depth. So we have a new way. He says in here, so put away this stuff. This is new, okay? And he says, like newborn infants, do this. And he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We have this new way, and its motivation is the goodness of God. And some of you, that phrase is very familiar because we looked at this psalm as one of our psalms this summer. It's from Psalm 34. Uh, we looked at it during the uh, unity service. And in that psalm, it's just uh, it's become one of my favorites. Uh, it's addressed as uh, the time when David changed his behavior before Abimelech. So if you remember the story, David's running from Saul. And uh, as he's running from Saul, he grabs some bread from the temple. And, and uh, the only weapon that they had was Goliath's sword. And so he gets Goliath's sword. And he runs into uh, Philistine territory to hide. And the town that he chooses is the town that Goliath came from. Uh, probably not a good idea to walk into that town with Goliath's sword, but he did. And so he ends up pretending as a madman to hide from the king and all these things. And he writes this psalm, and it's all about praising God in the hard times, praying to God in the hard times. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 34, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Now, it's interesting that he says that because he's literally, all he has is a borrowed sword and some bread. His lack is not material there. The young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And so Peter refers to that psalm and he reminds us that as we are exiled, just as he, David was, we have found something better. God is our refuge. God is our provider. God is our teacher and the giver of good things. Whatever you're going through this morning, whatever difficulties and challenges that you have, we are reminded that we have been called out of where we live to live as if this isn't our home. And our trust and our motivation for living is that God is good. Now the process of living in this uh, new way is that we have some things to put off. And he gives us a list, and I'm, I'm calling them community killers. 
Because he's, he's talking in community language and because he's talking to this group of exiles, he is saying, here's some things that will really wreck your community if you don't stop doing these. And so he gives us a list of things. Now, anytime the Bible gives us a list, I think there's a difference between a changed heart and a morally restrained heart. In other words, we can all outside of Christ, maybe work at being less of these things. But only when we give ourselves to who Christ is and what he has done and through the power of the Spirit do these things actually change. So these are the community killers that he's mentioned. They're just listed here. I just thought, just slow down a little bit, make sure we're defining them, make sure we understand what they are. Put off malice. Uh, It's a broad form of wickedness and ill will. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it has a bent towards a desire to injure somebody else. It's often very brazen and not ashamed. It could be harboring of a grudge or indifference. What I found about each of these words, as you look at them and what they mean, is that there's two possibilities. You could be actively doing it or passively doing it. In other words, you could be actively trying to cause trouble and ill will towards somebody, or you could just be passively, right, uh, indifferent. Giving somebody the cold shoulder and leaving them out can be a form of indifference and malice. The second word is deceit, or in some of your translations, guile. Uh, and the, the root of the word is trick bait, um, lure, okay? When, you, when you're fishing and you have a lure, um, you know, it's really kind of mean. You're, you're trying to trick the fish into believing this non-edible item is something that they want. You're trying to trick them. And the word there for deceit or guile has the idea of trying to trick The word guile in English means sly or cunning intelligence. And here again, the deceit can be an active lie or passive misleading, not not giving the full truth or, or hiding part of it or not correcting somebody and just letting them believe what they want to believe. The next word, and here's a word that we're more familiar with in church at least, is hypocrisy. The English word denotes a a purposeful, active deception. But the Greek word doesn't uh, necessarily have that distinction. Uh, It can be a broader concealment of one's own thoughts, feelings, or character. Or it can denote a a self-deception even. uh, A passive deception between belief and practice. And so the most common verse to think about here. Uh, is in Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites. He does so uh, several times in Matthew chapter 23. We'll just look at one of them. In Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shall shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him much a child of hell yourself. 
And he goes on and talking about how they give of their tithes and their offerings, but they neglect the greater things. So there's a certain where they're, there's a point in where they're teaching one thing, but doing another. That's how we normally think of hypocrisy. Another form of hypocrisy is just letting people think you're something you're not. I'm just going to, oh, I'll just let you keep on thinking that. I won't correct you. The next word is envy. A feeling of displeasure produced by witnessing or hearing of the advantage or prosperity of others. Envy is often the root of malice and slander. Envy is displeasure of somebody else's position, possessions, or people. And then the last one is slander. And slander is literally just evil speaking, backbiting, slander, innuendo, etc. These attitudes and actions are community killers. So we say we're a multi-generational church striving to uh, reach individuals and families in our communities. We do this by growing in our love for God. If if we're trying to grow in our love for God, these are things that should be disappearing from our community. And oftentimes in churches, there are things that love to thrive and grow. These activities, these attitudes are community killers. Um, And Peter is writing to a group of people that community is essential because they're being driven out of, in a sense, not physically, but at least relationally, out of their communities. And he's saying you're exiles. So as exiles, you need to care for your community. So we looked at uh, this new way. Uh, We have a new motivation. Uh, We have a new process. And then in your notes, I have a new hope. And I, I should have changed that word, but Think of a new foundation. He, he says here, so put away these things, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow in salvation. Um, and so we have this phrase. Here's, here's what we're to, to be doing. Like, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Now, when I read that, I instantly, in my opinion, uh, knew what Peter was talking about. The the milk is God's word. Uh, It was interesting in the commentary, some people wanted to bait that that's what Peter is referring to here. But if you look at the context, uh, he has several references to the word of God. Verse 23, living and abiding in the word of God, except from chapter one. Uh, The verse right before chapter two starts here, the end of verse 25, and the word is good news. Then this reference to pure spiritual milk. And then he has, again, at the end of this little section, the end of verse 8, again, the word. And so he's, he's, he's talking about the word of God here. That's what we're to crave. And so Peter, in his wisdom, he's using all sorts of Old Testament references in this passage. But here he uses a visual picture of a baby, an infant, craving pure spiritual milk. What is Peter saying about the way that we should approach God's word? First of all, uh, I just thought of three things. We could probably go further, but uh, the first one that I thought of was that we are to eagerly desire God's word. Have you ever seen a little baby that's hungry? 
It doesn't matter if mom's preparing the bottle or getting ready and getting in position, whatever she's getting. That kid just is going nuts. And they cry and they start getting mad and they're shaking. And you're like, calm down, I'm right here. Getting it. There's no reasoning with that infant. They are eager, and eagerly is not a strong enough word. Man, I'll tell you, few times do we eagerly desire spending more time in God's word. Few times do we eagerly say, man, I need to get into some in-depth Bible study. Anytime, I, I know, anytime oh, we read the Bible, read the Bible, you, you have to say that. You're the pastor. Peter is saying he's eagerly desire it. Second, again, not a mom, but, you know, had little kids. How about frequently? I mean, babies do three things, in my opinion. They take it in, take it out, and occasionally sleep. There's a frequency to an infant's desire for pure spiritual milk. What I find in people who have been around the church for a long time is there's no frequency to the intake of God's word. Peter is saying, you should desire it and do that in such a way, just like a baby does. And then third, we're dependent on it. Look, that baby is completely dependent on what mom and dad you know, bottle, whatever you're going to do, it, they're dependent on it. And you and I need to be dependent in exile on God's word and putting that up towards everything and saying, what does God's word say? So we have a new way. It's a new motivation. It's a new process. It's a new foundation. Second, we have a new community. So he says, as you come to him, as y'all come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God's chosen and precious. This new redeemed community is centered on Jesus. And I, I know that we know that, but we can't remind each other enough of it. It's interesting all the different little references that he uses. We're going to go through them one by one next week. But um, if we come to Christ, the living stone... Notice we become little stones. If we come to Christ who is the cornerstone, we become a spiritual house. If we come to Christ the chosen one, we're also chosen. But all this is centered and built upon Jesus Christ. And again, I know that you know that. You say, move on to your next point, Dave. We're there with you. We get it. But let me stop. If it's centered on him, if it's built on him, is it constantly being compared to him? If it's centered on him, and if we say he's the foundation, do we keep looking back to Jesus and saying, this is what it should look like in my life and in the life of the church? Now, again, it's nourished by God's word. You can't separate those two things. The word of God is all through this passage in chapter one and chapter two. It's all nourished by God's word. 
And then he says, so, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, as you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. This new redeemed community is built up on Jesus. Now, built up, he's the foundation. We're growing in this. And I just, I just want to remind you, because sometimes we struggle with this concept in American churches. But from a biblical point of view, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. So why does the community grow? As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Look, it's because God chose this method for growth in Jesus Christ. It's precious, it's loved, it grows because there's real love there. But here's the key. He's talking about a stone. It's a picture of a a big, huge corner section of a big temple or building. And he says, you yourselves, like living stones. I mean, that's like military intelligence. That's an oxymoron, right? That isn't... You can't have both. Sorry, military folks. Um, right? You, living stone. A stone by definition. He says, look, the reason this thing grows is because it's not a stone. It's living. It's alive. So it's built up on Jesus. Now, fourth, on your notes there, it's sent out for service. He uses the term priesthood twice uh, in the passage I read to you. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, when you hear priesthood, you're thinking back in the Old Testament. Uh, I was listening to one of the Bible Project podcasts, and this terminology came into my mind, and it's just been, been so much fun for me, and I think about this. So, um, they were talking about how the Bible's this masterfully written book that all tells a story, unified story about Jesus. And sometimes when you're reading, you come to a hyperlink. Now, for some of you who are older, hyperlink on a web page okay, is usually kind of colored a little different, or when you move your mouse, it kind of lights up, and you click on it, and it takes you somewhere else. And what they, what they were saying in this, in this uh, podcast I was listening to is that there's all sorts of hyperlinks in the Bible. That when you see it, you're supposed to go, oh yeah, I'm supposed to bring this information over here into this story. And Peter has a bunch of hyperlinks in chapter, there's just a bunch of them. In fact, there's so many of them, I said, okay, we're just going to deal with that in the next sermon. So you got to come back next week to hear the hyperlinks. This is one of them. And so priesthood was formed in Numbers chapter 3. And in Numbers chapter 3, Moses writes that the Levites were to uh, keep guard and minister to Aaron and the people. But here's the thing. When you get to that passage, that passage has a hyperlink. And that hyperlink takes you back to Genesis chapter 2. And in Genesis chapter 2, God puts man 
in the garden, and he says, I want you to work and keep it. And it's the same words that Moses uses with the Levites. I want you to work and keep it. The idea of priesthood is from creation. It's from the very beginning. God says, you're all to work, minister, and keep. And so Peter is grabbing onto what the nation of Israel was supposed to be, and now he's saying, you're it. And when I think of the priesthood, we think about being sent out or designated for service. So you and I are called to be ministers to the church and to the world. You and I are called to guard the church and to a certain extent the world from going down the wrong path. So let me just stop here for a minute, remind you of where we're at. We've been exiled not because we're being cast out by a governmental force, but Peter is saying we're exiled because we've put our faith in Jesus and we have a new way of thinking. And those exiled community groups are supposed to live like this isn't our home. And we shouldn't be surprised when things are getting difficult because we already know that things are broken in this world and that God is gonna restore all those things. But until he does that, he has placed us to be a part of this restoration process. And we do that because we have a new motivation. God is good and he loves us and he has called us out of this. And now because we have this new community, there's certain things that we don't want to do to upset that community. And we want to, as a community, we want to make sure that it's centered on Jesus, that it's nourished by God's word, that it's being built up and it's growing and it's healthy and that we are working and keeping what God has called us to do. Now, the final thing on your notes there is that we have a new identity. And I'm just gonna touch on this next week because we're gonna come back to and that's gonna be the whole focus of next Sunday's sermon, who we are, where we are, and how we are going. Um, but looking at this just briefly, um, who we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Now, he doesn't use that phrase specifically here as Paul uses it all over his writing. But that idea coming from verse 4, as you come to him. And then as we come... We are built into this spiritual house. We become part of who he is, and we're given a new purpose in this holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then we are this, these other terms that we're going to look at next week in verse 9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are in Christ. And part of being in Christ, because we're this spiritual house, and he uses spiritual house here, and it's another hyperlink to me. When you think spiritual house, what do you think he has in mind? I think he has the temple in mind, which also goes back to the garden. But we'll look at that next week. Spiritual house. You're, You're a part of it. You're built into it. 
Now, let me, let me go back to that malice and deceit and slander. Um, we were, uh, Rich and I were getting to hear, uh, oh man, who was that speaking now? I can't think of um, who that was. But he, uh, uh, Francis Chan, and uh, we were hearing Francis Chan, and he was talking about this idea of us being this spiritual house, this temple. And he took us back to the Old Testament when the first Solomon's temple was revealed. And, you know, that temple, by the way, it, the Bible almost doesn't do it justice. There was this uh, high school kid uh, who did a, a, a research project in trying to figure out how much the temple, Solomon's temple, would have cost to build it today. And... Uh, the most expensive building on the planet currently, I believe it's in Dubai, it would cost $13 billion. The most, uh, his estimate of the cost of the temple in gold, silver, bronze, all that stuff, was $133 billion. This was quite a building. He, God is saying you are part of it. So Francis Sands says, just picture the temple being revealed. You're sitting there. The sun, it's, it's hot. It's in the desert area. The sun is beating off the gold. Of the te- it's blinding. You can't even hardly look at it. And Francis Chan said, what if somebody just picked up a rock and threw it at it? I mean, what would happen to that guy? I mean, probably would have been killed instantly. And now in the New Testament, it says, you all are that holy temple. And when you speak malice and deceit and guile, you pick up one of those rocks and just throw it at God's temple. You say, well, it's unimaginary. You would never do that to Solomon's temple. And he said, that's the point. You should never do it to this temple either. We are in Christ. We are chosen. In verse 9, the, uh, Jesus is chosen. He is using this term in chapter 1, verse 1, that we are chosen. So in Christ, and without getting into, again, that concept of chosen, when we are chosen, God's people have responsibility. If you get picked for the team, you have to operate on the team. If you're chosen, you have a responsibility. And then on your notes, I put in there, we are sent in and out. In and out. What do I mean by that? Well, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's inward love. Now, when he says uh, at the end of this passage, keep your conduct, verse, uh, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, not if they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's an outward witness. And my favorite passage, and one of my favorite passages in, in, in Scripture, 1 Peter three fifteen, but set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. That's an outward. So we've been sent in and out. 
And so in this difficult passage, we are reminded, verse 11, beloved, I urge you. Peter just throws out this reminder. I know things are hard. I know things aren't working out the way that you thought they would work out. I know that being built up into a spiritual house is is difficult and people on the inside and outside are making it difficult. I just want to remind you that you're loved. To accept Jesus as redeemer is to accept the, the people he has redeemed and to live in community with them. Here's some application and actions for this morning. Obviously, this is a good time to remind you to sign up for a small group, but that's not my point here. Healthy community happens when we're willing to put off community killers. Um, I, I started this by sharing my wife and I's gripe session. I recognized that gripe session was taking us down a wrong road. Uh, um, and so I, I, I time out. Let's not do that. We can, we can really kill things with our words, with our attitudes. And for some of you, this idea of we are growing in our love for God, I want you to think about, is your relationship with God growing? Are you being inwardly changed because of who God is? Are there things that you need to put off that are killing community? Second, I want to urge you to long for God's word. Um... When I die, if the Lord has not returned yet, which is my preference, at my funeral, I think about what would they what, what will they say about me? Maybe you don't maybe you think about that, maybe you don't. I hope that my kids saw me spending regular time in God's Word. I hope that my kids know that I love them and that I live sacrificially, but what would church people say about me? Um, I hope that you hear my passion for helping individuals study God's word on their own. That you hear that I strongly believe that this book was meant to be read over and over and over again, in community, discussed, talked about, asked questions about it. That that this is, outside of Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, that this is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. And I hope that you hear that. I mean, I know that you think I just say that because I'm the pastor, but I still do it. I still do it. And sometimes when I'm reading something, I go, I know I've read that before, but... And that you know, happens more and more as we get older, right? I think I've read that before. What, I do? what is that? But what I am doing, because I've been reading God's word for a while, is those hyperlinks are just starting to pop all off the page for me. And I'm going, oh, wait a second, he's talking about this. And the last thing is that it should be centered on Jesus Christ. 
um, our community is not centered on my personality, it's not centered on preaching, it's not centered on our format, it's not centered on our denomination or location, it's not centered on our history. This church needs to be firmly centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it needs to, to stay there. So um, I, w- I would ask you to consider those things and where you're at in line with them. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning. Thank you uh, for the opportunities you've given us uh, to dig into your word. Um, I thank you for the privilege of being able to study it and to preach it. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, as a church, that we wouldn't just hear it, but that we would think about how we can apply it this week as we are sent out. Uh, We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.